Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and today I'm excited to have Fabrice Rinder who is uh, who's a founder of startup studio and venture fund FJK Labs which he co-founder with his business partner uh, Jose Marin. Uh, Fabrice has uh, more than 150 exits on 500 uh, angel investments. Fabrice has served as CEO for three multinational companies and has an impressive track record as an early investor in Alibaba, Flexport, Zoompizza, Delivery Hero and others. Uh, prior to FJ Labs, Fabrice was co-founder and CEO of OLX, one of the largest uh, websites in the world with over 300 million unique visitors per month. The company operates in 30 countries and has over 5,000 employees. Fabrice holds a BA in economics from Princeton University. Welcome to the show, Fabrice. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So, you know, how did you get into this crazy world of startups and venture capital? Well, the... the I guess getting into startups really came out of what was a hobby of mine. Uh, in the 1980s, I, you know, I got my first PC when I was 10 in 1984, and I started like building computers and assembling them and and learning to program. I ran a BBS or a bulletin board service in the pre-internet days, and was really following what was going on with uh, Microsoft and Apple, so Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and. I knew I wanted to be in the tech sector in some way, shape, or form. And then I went to Princeton in 92, studied economics and math mostly because I didn't feel I needed to learn anything else in the, in the computer sphere. And, and lo and behold, the internet bubble started coming to the fore and exploding. That said, at that time, I, when I graduated, I was 21. I didn't really understand anything. I'd never managed people. I didn't really know business. I'm like, even though I want to be a tech entrepreneur in the future, I'm probably it's good for me to go and learn the basics of business. So I went to McKinsey and Company as a consultant in New York uh, for two years, 96, 97, 98. I thought actually doing so, I might miss the bubble, but lo and behold, I didn't. And so uh, in 98, I left McKinsey and I built my first startup and basically it's uh, gone over there. Now on the venture side, kind of happened by happenstance. I mean, when, when you're a consumer-facing internet CEO and you're rather visible, a lot of other entrepreneurs are asking for money. And so I became an angel investor pretty much in 1998 when I started building companies. And for the next like 15 years, essentially, as I was building companies, I kept angel investing. And when I sold OLX in uh, 2013, or when I'd left OLX at least in 2013, I'd already made over 100 angel investments. And I'm like, you know what? I like building companies. I like investing in companies. Let's create a, a structure or holding company to keep doing that, which is the genesis of FJ Labs. Uh, but I actually never thought I would be building a venture fund per se. It was just investing personal capital. But then little by little, a number of strategic investors said, hey, what you guys are doing is interesting. And it's interesting to us. We'd love to invest alongside you guys to get a knowledge and expertise in the marketplace space, which is uh, my specialty. In, and, and so in 2016, we built our first fund uh, with 15 million of external capital. And then uh, in 2018, we built our second fund. And um, yeah, we were off to the races. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you've been a part of uh, 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 building companies like Zingi and Olex. What, what were some of the biggest learnings from, from, from you know, raising capital and building companies and getting the exit out of, uh, you know, Zingi and Olex? 
Well, very different learnings in terms of building the businesses and also very different learnings in terms of raising capital. Raising money, there is an, an X factor. Uh, clearly, the, I mean, VCs, I put, put, put it myself differently in the shoes of a venture capitalist today, an investor, what is it that I look for in an entrepreneur? And usually it's four things and I'm, I'll just go high level. It's like extraordinary storytelling skills and, and analytical skills in the team, so an amazing team. Uh, Number two, a great, great business uh, per se, which means great unit economics. I want them to recoup their customers' acquisition costs in six months and to 3x their customer acquisition costs in 18 months. Uh, three, reasonable deal terms. And four, something that fits my thesis. But then that, that X factor is, is the idea that you're doing in line with what the world is looking for at that point in time? And it just so happened that in the 1998, when I was building my first company, which was an eBay for Southern Europe, the pedigree, like the bubble was, in, in, it was really an internet bubble. I mean, because I had the right pedigree, like McKinsey, Princeton, et cetera, people were throwing money at me. I was 23. I really didn't know what I was doing. And I managed to raise like 63 million in venture money. After the bubble exploded in 2001, even though I'd built a company that made a lot of sense, was capital efficient, had great unit economics, it was impossible to raise a single dollar. So 2001, 2002, 2003, as I was doing BDC Telecom in a way, um, I don't think I'd finished the sentence talking to a VC that they hung up. Like there, there was no way to raise a single dollar. And so I borrowed, I, I invested every last penny I had. I borrowed on my credit cards. I, I tapped out all my friends and family to raise like in 5K or 10K increments. I, I missed payroll like 27 times. I had to live in New York in the office, couldn't even afford coffee, you know, basically living off of ramen noodles. And we're starting to attract investor interest only after it became profitable, which of course was no longer necessary. So I sold that company. But then the next company, because investors had missed out on investing in Zingy and making a lot of money, all of a sudden VCs were throwing money at me all over again. It's like, oh, whatever you do, we'll fund you. And so I built OLX. We started from the get-go raising 10 million at a 28 million valuation, like with uh, just on a PowerPoint based on a dream. Uh, and so the funding raising environment matters a lot, right? Today, if you if you're trying to build a company today, you need to raise money in the, the in the middle of like the COVID pandemic, uh, it's extraordinarily hard to raise capital. But at the same time, it's really an amazing time to be an entrepreneur and to raise money and, and, and because the opportunity cost has decreased and you're facing less competition. So in terms of lessons learned, so fundraising, there's this X factor of like, are you hitting the zeitgeist or are you in the macro at the right time in the macro or people looking for something that what you're building? And of course, do you meet the requirements? Um, and, and there are a lot of lessons learned in terms of like run an effective process, make sure that all the people we're talking to you are more or less of the same change at the same time, and, 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 and also be in line with the expectations of, of, of venture capitalists, right? Like, so if you're talking to seat stage VC, you need to have the seat stage level traction and expectations of valuation and fundraising, same thing at the A and same thing at the B. Now, in terms of lessons learned writ large, in terms of building a company, there's so many of them in the sense that I made mistakes hiring the wrong type of people. I made mistakes keeping them on too long. I made mistakes, um, you know, I launched a company that ultimately had a massive component of SEO. I didn't even know what the SEO was. And that was OLX when we first created it in early 2006. And so there, 
the, the issue is not making mistakes. You will make mistakes operating. It, it's just react and be, be, be decisive, throw, throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall and, and, and adjust accordingly. Got it. And, uh, you know, you've been uh, an angel investor and then you went on to be a VC. Um, so, uh, you know, how do you think the investment mentality is impacted from the shift from being an angel investor to be a VC? I think for most people, it'd be a pretty different experience because an angel investor, you're a passive investor, you're writing 50K checks, you're not doing due diligence, you're not, you're not the lead. And most VCs, it's the opposite. They make concentrated bets uh, in companies. They, they take the lead, they take a board seat, and they're much more involved. Um, in my case, it wasn't a very big transition at all because I decided I want to be a VC that acted like an angel. So we are, we are, we're never leading. We're always co-investing with the major VCs. And there's a few reasons for that. But one of the main reasons is we want to be their friends, a value-added investor and not a competitor. We're not fighting for allocation. And so if Sequoia or Excel is writing a check, I want them to say, hey, Fabrice knows a lot about this category. He can help the entrepreneur. I should bring him in. And if they're investing 7 million, we'll invest 500K or 700K. So in our case, or in my case, moving from an angel to VC didn't really change anything. We still don't, you know, we decide very quickly, like two one-hour meetings over a one-week period, and, and we say yes or no, and we say why. Um, we have full transparency on, on investment processes. We're still super prolific. I mean, last year, we invested in 124 startups. We, we have almost 600 companies in the portfolio. Um, so the, the approach hasn't really changed. I mean, we're still acting like super angels rather than proper venture capitalists, even though we're deploying like 50-plus million a year. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, as you mentioned, you've invested in 124 in, uh, uh, startups last year. So what is the investment thesis and how do you look at portfolio construction for FJ Labs? So, again, we're not a normal VC because we don't look at portfolio construction. So most VCs are like, oh, we're whatever. I want my fund to have 10 Series A companies and I'm keeping money for follow-ons, etc. It's more... We don't actually have a set ratio of like, uh, do we want seed, pre-seed, A, B, C, Europe, US, India, Brazil. It's more, we see companies, if we like the company, we invest. If we don't like the company, we don't invest. And, and then we see what happens. And it just so happens the portfolio right now is about 65% seed, pre-seed, 25% A and B, 10% later stage, and then 70% US and Canada, 20% Western Europe and the Nordics, and 10% Brazil and India. But it's not because we constructed it that way. Also, we have a very different philosophy on follow-ons. We don't actually keep capital for follow-ons. So if fund one invested and we ran out of money in fund one because we deployed everything, we'll invest, if, we, if we decide to do a follow-on and we only do it 25% of the case because we only do it if um, we think the company... Basically, we evaluate the follow-ons as though we were not existing investors. Then we're like, okay, based on what we know about the founder and the team and the traction and the, and the deal terms, would we want to invest? And if the answer is yes, we do our follow-on. If not, we don't. But if we do do it, very often it comes from the next fund, which is not at all the way traditional VCs work. So we actually do not have portfolio construction or portfolio construction theory. We tell people, if you invest with us, you should invest in every fund This we get exposure to everything we do. And, and you don't need to think through, and we're not trying to overthink portfolio construction. I, again, I, we don't have institutional investors. When I, if I go to institutional investors and I tell them, I'll invest at every stage, in every geography, in every industry, 
we don't do due diligence and we don't take board seats, you know, I don't think I finished the sentence that Brady died in a heart attack. Yet, her performance is like top 1% of all VCs ever uh, because actually our flexibility has allowed us to move chase, to move stage or geography based on where we see opportunity. There are periods where it's better to be at seed, there are periods where it's better to be at pre-seed or seed extension or A, there are periods where, you know, like 10 years ago, Brazil, India, Turkey, sorry, Brazil, Turkey, and Russia were probably 50% of our investments. And then after the geopolitical changes, we brought that almost to zero. And then only recently uh, started investing in Brazil again. India wasn't part of our thesis. We added India. And so that flexibility, I think, has been very beneficial to us, uh, but it's very, very non-traditional and explains why we don't have like pension funds or university endowments as investors. They, they, nor, nor do I want to, nor do I want the structure. I mean, the virtue of not leading means there's a maximum check size I can write, right? If a, if a seed stage, if a seed round is like 3 million and the lead is putting 1.5 million, I can't really invest more than 500K. Otherwise I start being a signal in the, in the round and, and having too much ownership. So we don't, don't have ownership requirements. I mean, we're, we're really fundamentally different. Got it. And uh, you, you know, you've been long on uh, marketplaces, which is which can be harder to build up front, but easier to scale. But, uh, 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 you know, what is your thesis of how, how do you look at marketplaces and uh, wh- what does a founder needs to do to build a marketplace in 2020? Sure. So I love marketplaces because they bring liquidity and transparency to otherwise opaque and fragmented markets. And right now there are three theses we're focusing on marketplaces. One is, the continued verticalization of uh, horizontal marketplaces. So a horizontal marketplace is a marketplace that is in multiple categories. So, you know, Bazi or eBay India or OLX is a horizontal, but frankly, Uber Eats is a horizontal. They're in multiple food categories. Uh, or the same thing is true of uh, um, Thumbtack or Angie's List in the home services category. And so, one, there's already been a very big trend of these companies going or companies being verticalized, uh, but that's continuing. And it's not only continuing in the core product categories of OLX and, and eBay, but it's also happening in all the other categories. So in, in, in the U.S., for instance, we're investors of a company called Slice, which is a pizza uh, online app, a food delivery company, and they're doing really, really well for a variety of reasons I'm happy to talk about later. Now, second big thesis is for services marketplace, changing for one where you need to talk to the buyer and the seller need to talk to one where the marketplace picks your supply. So if you're, if you're driving an Ola or an Uber, you want to go from point A to point B, you just say that. You don't pick your driver. And our thesis is that this selection that we do on behalf of the client, uh, we can do in every category. If you're an employer and you want to hire a programmer, instead of going to Upwork and saying, I need a PHP developer, um, we just say, this is the developer for you. And the same thing is true for an SEO person or SEM person in marketing. And, and there's a lot of these types of uh, vertical marketplaces that we're building in the labor space and the services space. And then the third big thesis on a marketplace perspective is um, B2B marketplaces. So there's been this revolution in the consumer space with extraordinary user experiences coming out of things like Uber or Facebook or Google or... but. In many ways, the, the, the B2B space lags behind, and most of the transactions are happening based on relationships, on Rolodex, on email, on Excel, and, and they haven't been brought to the online world. And so 
we're investing either in marketplaces in a specific category, so we're in Node, a petrochemicals marketplace, or in the supply chain of the categories. For instance, we're investors in RigUp, which is an oil services company that provides labor to oil services companies, you know, for instance, welders for a week. Uh, and these are the three core theses that we've been looking at. Now, to answer your second part of your question, which is, how does one go about building a marketplace today? Uh, right. Most marketplaces are demand constrained because the suppliers are financially motivated to be on the platform. So we focus as founders, entrepreneurs, or as investors telling our companies to do on the supply side. We say get, but a very it's very easy to get infinite supply. You don't want to do that. You want very curated, highest quality supply um, to that are going to delight their customers. And you want to bring them great customers who are going to represent a fair amount of their revenues. So ideally, you should represent at least 25% of their revenues, ideally 100%, but to start with, of your supply. And you really want to scale supply and demand um, and, and match them very effectively such that you don't have a lot of supply that's not getting any work, otherwise they're going to churn, uh, and they're high quality enough that your demand side is going to be very happy. And that usually means you start hyper-local in a, in a neighborhood or in a city uh, and in one very specific category, and then you scale from there. Got it. I, I remember at, at OYO Rooms also, we we constrained ourselves to, to one geography, and then we went on to scale to other, other cities and other countries. But, uh, but you know, what, what, how are different ways you can drive supply and demand for, for marketplaces? Well, it really depends on the category, right? Like in many, in, in, in some cases, you can just acquire them uh, through Google or Facebook. In some categories, it warrants having a sales team. You know, so if you if you have a reasonably short tail of, of demand side coming from large enterprise, you probably have an enterprise sales team. Sometimes you do maybe to get the supply, you might do as a LinkedIn if it's a, if it's for labor or or and the categories uh, for for jobs that those people follow on Facebook and 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 maybe if it's an SMB, you you do. Uh, do you, you create marketing online that leads to inbound sale or inbound calls that then are converted by by uh, by 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 sales team. So there are definitely a, a a key set of channels. Which one is right for you depends on on the segment you're going after. And frankly, at the end of the day, it's all about data economics. Can you make can you make your your acquisition channel? your paid acquisition channel especially work uh, and can you scale it and as long as the answer is yes you can you keep scaling and you're going to do great got it and and other than marketplace are, are there any other you know sectors which you which you favor not really the i mean we're so broad otherwise right we're in every geography and every stage and every industry the real focus is marketplaces and the reason i like marketplaces is it, it unlocks a massive amount of value to create liquidity and transparency in opaque and fragmented markets. And also they're in inherently scalable in the sense that once you have the flywheel going and ever more buyers brings in more sellers and more sellers bring in more wires, buyers, it creates a massive barrier to entry. And they have a tendency as a result to become winner takes most, if not winner takes all. And they're much more compelling companies than traditional companies where you need a, a lot more capital, the barriers to entry a lot lower, you know, maybe you need to build a brand and these things are less compelling to me than things that have fundamental network effects. Got it. And uh, 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 
uh, you know, are there are there any metrics which which founders should hone on, and uh, are there any metrics which they uh, they should disregard uh, when they're looking at uh, raising funds? Well, a few things. So we, as I mentioned earlier, are unit economic focus. And so when you pitch us, whether it, regardless of stage, if you're pre-launch, it can be theoretical unit economics based on what the average order in the industry is and what you expect yours to be, and they better be aligned. And based on the tests you've done at customer acquisition costs. And as I said, we like businesses where you recoup your fully loaded customer acquisition costs on a net contribution margin basis, so CM2 basis, after six months at the latest, you 3x your CAC in 18 months, and ideally you have negative churn. So even though maybe 50% of your business, of your demand is churned, the remaining 50% are buying so much more that who knows what your CAC to LTV is. Maybe it's 10x, maybe it's 20x. Uh, so for us, that's absolutely fundamentally important. Now, when you go to raise money, you need to be aware that different investors, different stages have a have different set of expectations. So if you're pre-seed and you're just launching, okay, you don't need any metrics. When you're at seed, most of the companies talking to us, we expect them to have 100 to 200K a month in the US in GMV, and they take 10 to 20% of that. So their net revenues um, are gonna be between 10 and 40K, let's say. Uh, when you're at series A, most of the companies are gonna be 500K and 1 million a month in GMV, again, taking 10 to 20%. Um, and so they're going to have in net revenues 50k to 200k, um, and the margin on that net revenue, by the way, we expect them to have is like 60 or 70 percent. And and so there is a pretty clear set of expectations for where people need to be in order to, in in order to raise. And if you're trying to raise when you're not in these ranges, it, it's problematic. Actually, I my la my current last blog post is uh, what are the different expectations or ranges you need to be at to raise different rounds. And this way it's a good guideline for who you should be talking to. Right, and and you know uh, we'll we'll put that in the in the show notes as well. And uh, you know we're recording this podcast in in the April month of April, and uh, we're still in the in uh, uh, in a, in a uh, times of COVID nineteen. Uh, what what start what what would be your advice to founders on uh, how they should look at uh, f funding uh, uh, you raising the next round of funding, and what what would be your advice for them to grow the business? Well, for the most part, funding is completely dried up right now. So if you're trying to, if you need to raise money right now, uh, you're, you're probably screwed. Uh, what we're telling all of our founders is really, and, and obviously it's a broad generalization. Some people are actually benefiting from those because they're in the remote workspace or they're in video games, et cetera. But for the most part, people are, are making sure that they either get a profitability or extend the runway for at least 18 to 24 months. And that has meant on average that many of the founders have cut their salary to zero. They've cut all of their staff salary by 30% and they actually fired 30% of, the, of their team to really decrease burn. And then the only KPI that matters is profitability. Can we get a profitability? Can we narrow that? Can we become masters of our own destiny? Because the assumption is that cash is king and potentially for a long time, no money is going to be coming. And, and no money is going to be coming for a number of reasons. A lot of people are risk off right now. But let's say the economy starts doing well again or better in Q3, Q4. Every single company that hasn't been raising is going to go out and try to raise that. It means the probability of raising is probably not going to be all that high in, in, in Q4 of 2020. And so making sure that you have cash through ideally raise in Q3 or Q4 2021 will put you in a lot stronger position. So most companies that 
that in the easy times also had a fair amount of fat because they would use the extra cash in order to spend more, more on marketing than probably needed to in order to, to hide the fact that their growth wasn't as seller as it could have been or, you, or, or basically using this opportunity to trim down, make sure they focus on the core, make sure they get the basics right. Um, if, you're, if you just raise money before the crisis, you're probably in an amazing position right now because you're facing less competition, customer acquisition costs have gone down across the board, and you can still use this time to, to, to be opportune. If you raised six months ago, probably you can, you can make enough cuts to actually extend, extend your runway. It also depends which stage you're at. If you're an early stage company, uh, you know, seed stage company doing 100,000 a month in, in gross sales. But if you were taking 15% break, you're making 15% of that and you had a 66% margin, at the end of the day, it was only impacting your profitability by 10K. If that goes to zero, it's not a big deal. You can probably find 10K of cuts to do in your cost structure reasonably easily. It's a much bigger issue at the later stage. A company doing 15 million or 20 million a month that was taking 20% and a 66% margin, if that goes to zero, they may have fired half their team and still have increased their losses dramatically. And so earlier stage companies in general are in a much better position, especially since the macro that really matters for them is the macro in seven years or 10 years when they're exiting. And so we're still investing in the early stages as long as the companies are not in categories that are overly affected by this, like the event space, for instance, or, I mean, live events, uh, or um, and as long as they have enough cash for the next 18 to 24 months. Now, if you're thinking of becoming an entrepreneur today, I would argue this is the best time possible. The, the, there's going to be the opportunity cost in the, in the sense that jo other jobs that are paying well or is decreasing because those jobs are most likely going away. The, you're not going to face all that much competition, uh, especially if you're in a position to raise capital. And as a result, both direct customer acquisition costs from competitors are going to be lower because your CPCs are going to be lower. But frankly, the entire ecosystem is not advertising. And so CACs will be lower. You're going to, you're, it's going to, you're going to be able to pay talent less. So we have less competition to, to attract the best team. And, and it's going to be extraordinary. If you look back at the last crisis in 08, 09, the most interesting and startups of the last decade were all created in the last, in the last uh, 2008, 2009 financial crisis. Uber... Airbnb, WhatsApp, uh, Slack, all of them. Got it. And uh, uh, again, I'm wondering, uh, since since you invest into into so many uh, companies in a year, uh, how do you get the deal flow? Uh, uh, you know, so that you're able to deploy the capital in all these uh, 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 all these uh, companies. Well, in a way, we're very privileged. I mean, the beauty of having been an investor for the last 22 years is we're known as investors, especially in marketplaces. And so we have deal flow coming, we get about 100 deals a week, and they come in three different ways. A third comes directly to us uh, inbound through LinkedIn, or uh, mostly LinkedIn, but frankly, everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, um, or, or, or email. A third comes from uh, entrepreneurs we've backed in the past. So in the past, because we invest in like 600 companies, it's like 1,500 entrepreneurs. And they, they come back for the next company, they send us their friends, they send us their employees who are becoming founders. Uh, and a third comes from VCs. Because we are not leading deals and we don't have a minimum check size, we, we're not competing with, for allocation with other VCs. And so we work with them. We, and all of our companies that are at seed need to go and get an A, all our A needs to be. And frankly, even at the stage we're currently investing at, all those companies need a lead. 
And so we bring all these deals to our friendly VC partners. So we talk to 100 VCs every six to eight weeks and we share a deal flow with them. And so they send us deals and we send them back deals. And, and those three channels work really well. Right. And, and since you're not a conventional VC, you know, how, uh, how do you, uh, uh, you know, do you have LPs and how do you deploy the capital? Is it your own, own personal capital, which you're deploying there? Yeah. So to date, we've deployed 260 million. I think almost 100 million is uh, our money, uh, the, the two partners. Uh, the rest is third-party LPs, which are mostly strategics, uh, meaning companies that are marketplaces that are interested in learning what's going on in the U.S. and potentially acquiring some of the companies in the portfolio. Right. And, and, and how do you uh, think about and approach uh, you know, market sizing today? Like, do you think it's, it's important when you analyze investments? The so total addressable market size matters, but not as much as you might think, because in a in a smaller market, you're usually in a position to dominate the category, and and in so doing, especially if you create a much better user experience, you can usually increase the category. Number one or two, you dominate it and then you use that position to go in a conjoint category. And so, as long as your core market is a few billion dollars. Um, it's fine. It's big enough. And, and so we don't worry too much. It doesn't need to be a hundred billion dollar market. You can still build a massive business as long as you dominate that. And then you go in a joint category or joint geography. Right. And, uh, and you, you know, you've been part of, uh, uh, companies like, uh, 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 you know, uh, sorry, you've been, uh, invest in a lot of companies, you know, some of the best CEOs recruit the best talent to the team. And, uh, uh, you know, what is the advice would you give to CEOs on how to recruit the second level of, uh, you know, leadership team? And is there anyone in your portfolio, which comes into your mind, who's done a great job uh, out of it? The... So there's a question of like hiring the best people and the, usually these are functional experts, right? So you're getting the best CFO or VP finance, you're gonna get the best COO to help you with operations, you're gonna get that CMO um, and, and the best time to bring them on board. And also the different people, you need to learn, either they need to scale or you need to think through how to evolve. So because often your first lead engineer, he may be great for the first 10, 15 engineers, he may not be great once you, need, once you have 50 or 100. Um, usually we try to have a fully robust management team by the series V, um, guy I think has done a really good job at building an amazing team is, uh, Charles Gora from Rebag, which is a, a handbag marketplace where I think every single sector or segment from PR to marketing to, to managing offline stores to product that he's hired a superstar. Um, and yeah, kind of do the series B. You do it when it hurts, uh, but not too late, right? Like I think getting a, a CFO or VP of finance on board reasonably early makes sense to help you do uh, intelligent financial planning and to take a lot or offload a lot of the work um, that frankly a CEO you shouldn't be doing on the admin side, like on the fundraising side. I mean, you should be doing the pitches, but everything else in terms of like getting the deal docs done, et cetera, like is way better if you're not allocating your time to that. Got it. And uh, Fabrice, I quickly want to do the top three. Um, I know you read a lot of books in a year, but do you have any favorite, you know, a business book or a, a fiction or nonfiction book? So, yeah, to your point, I read a lot. I, I varies between 50 and 100 books a year. Um, I don't like business books at large. I, I, I don't know. I find them 
kind of dumb and, and, and not very applicable uh, for the most part. So I, I read both fiction, like a lot of sci-fi uh, and fantasy and, and frankly novels and, and, and historical fiction and a lot of nonfiction, things like Sapiens or Why We Sleep or Lifespan or, or How to Change Your Mind, which I would all recommend. I actually have a book recommendation list, I think, on my blog, both fiction and nonfiction that people can check out. Um, I, I don't have, like, a favorite book. It's just, like, what is the book that, is the, that I've read recently that, that is the most meaningful? But I, I think in the, in the non nonfiction category, may I say Sapiens, uh, Why We Sleep, Lifespan, and How to Change Your Mind are probably the, the, the last few that I would recommend the most. Um, yeah. Right, and uh, you, uh, you know when you when you start building uh, uh, Olex and your other companies, startups that you've built, is, is there anything you would have done differently, or anything one thing you would have focused on? Well, there are many things I would have done differently. Uh, my first company, I hired twenty uh, gray-haired executives on the recommendation of my investors, who didn't really understand the the how tech was and they were, they wanted to build like consensus where you really need decisiveness. So how I recruit has changed profoundly. When I built OLX, I didn't realize, I didn't, I, I didn't know what SEO was and SEO ultimately became a, a massive source of traffic for us. I think like a hundred million weeks a month are coming from SEO and, and I didn't even know it existed when I launched the company. So sometimes, um, yeah, I know there are many, many, like I took the wrong investors from my first company. They, we didn't, we weren't aligned in terms of vision or ambition, but I didn't realize that until after we closed the investment. Um, there are many things that would have changed. Now, the problem is with the information I had at the time, could I have made a better decision? I'm not sure. Um, so, but, but yeah, I made infinite mistakes. I think what matters more is, um, making a decision, evaluating objectively, and, and correcting course if need be. So be decisive, throw a lot of spaghetti in the wall, and, and iterate, iterate, iterate until you find the right answer. Right. And, and do you have any favorite online tools, for example, uh, Zoom, uh, Slack? Yeah, I mean, we've been working both distributed and remote forever. So this hasn't changed this pandemic hasn't changed very much for us. Uh, we, we've been users of Zoom uh, and, and Skype forever. We, 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 we've been using cloud-based email tool, cloud-based um, cloud, cloud emails and everything else. So we're, yeah, we've been using Slack, ex Exchange, Slash, Outlook, and Zoom and Skype forever. And so I'm not sure I have a favorite per se, but uh, clearly uh, we wouldn't operate nearly as effectively as we do today if it wasn't for, for those tools. Right. And, and what is the best way people can reach out to you and uh, know more about FJ Labs? The, you can, um, ideally, you have people in common with me that could introduce you to me. If, if, if that's not the case, you'd have reach out on LinkedIn. And you can find more about me at my blog, FabriceGrinda.com and FG Labs at FJLabs.com. Sure. Well, we, we'll put that in the, in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and speaking to us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com. <laughs>